Hey y'all, happy Women's History Month, and welcome to episode 13 of the Sisters-in-Law podcast. I'm your host, Charity Gates, back with a very special guest this week. This episode is long overdue, but we're here. I met Electra at a panel that I spoke on at my alma mater, and I instantly knew that her presence would be perfect for the podcast. She is such a light and shines with incredible confidence. Electra B. Yao Esquire is the founder and principal attorney at Yao Law Group Law Firm, dedicated to international and domestic artists. Electra earned her bachelor's degree in communication arts from Marymount Manhattan College in New York City, one of the top art schools in the nation. During her undergraduate university career, Electra wrote, directed, and produced two documentaries, Nigga What and The Choking Game, which were screened in Texas and New York City. Electra is a very active attorney and is a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, Black Entertainment and Sports Lawyers Association, and the New York City Bar Association, where she is a member of several committees. As a multicultural attorney with immigrant parents from Italy and Cote d'Ivoire, Electra is fully fluent in French, Italian, and Spanish. She has lived, studied, and worked internationally in the U.S., the EU, and Africa. Not only does she understand the language her clients speak, she understands the cultural and artistic landscape of where they come from. Electra has successfully represented record labels, modeling agencies, production companies, individual artists, and creatives. So now let's get into the episode and hear more from Electra. All right, so let's get started. Hello, Electra. Welcome to the Sisters in Law podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be a part of this project and to contribute to it in a meaningful way. Thank you. I appreciate that. So I like to get acquainted with my guests by asking the first question, what is your origin story? So basically, where are you and your people from? Yeah, so I'm um, from New York City. I was born in Miami to immigrant parents. My dad is from a country in West Africa called Cote d'Ivoire. And my mom is from a small town in the south of Italy called Rotondi. And um, basically, my parents met in New York and went to Miami to hang out a bit. And then I traveled a little bit, and then we finally settled in New York. So I'm of mixed race of immigrant parents. And the the funny thing about the way I grew up, which I find so interesting now compared to like Gen Zers, is that when I was growing up, there was a huge focus on our culture, right? Our culture, like, you know, the cultural traditions that my parents passed down to me from their countries. And of course, the traditions that we developed as a family here in America. And there wasn't really a lot of talk about, you know, race and gender, whereas these discourses are very, very active now. What is a person's race? What is not a person's race? Whereas when I was growing up, it was more like, okay, you know, mommy, I call my parent, my parents, mommy and daddy, mommy's from, you know, Italy and daddy's from, you know, Cote d'Ivoire. And we were always, we always identified ourselves with our nationalities and our cultural groups. And I'm, I'm curious how my kids will identify because they are um, of mixed race as well because of me and my husband is Italian. So I'm curious to see what the discourse will be in the future. I'm very excited about these discussions because I think that it's important to really bring light to them, Mm -hmm. especially in our field. The legal field is such a noble profession. And in New York, one of the most linguistically, you know, national diverse cities in the world, it's important for our profession to reflect all the different 
colors and cultures and ethnicities of the attorneys in the city. Right. Yeah. And I'm sure it's interesting to have those multiple identities because you can pull from so many different sources to inform your work as well. And speaking of that, how did you decide to attend law school and why did you choose to go to the school that you ultimately went to? So I, in undergrad, studied film and TV. Being from New York, I studied musical theater and experimental theater growing up. So I was involved in, very actively involved in the the art scene or the theater scene here in New York. So I performed at La Mama ETC, which is a huge experimental theater company. I did street theater, which is very, very well known here on the East Coast at Theater for the New City downtown. Um, The creative director is Crystal Fields, fantastic eccentric woman. So in college, I, I moved away from theater and moved towards, you know, the visual image. So photography and filmmaking and actually went to school on my first year in Texas on a photography scholarship. And while I was at school, I developed Uh, my first documentary called The N-Word, which is about the history of the N-Word and the use of the N-Word and the acceptance of the N-Word by different types of people. And that led me to start my second film called um, The Choking Game about autoerotica oral asphyxiation. So basically people who engage in sexual relations. And while they're engaging in sexual relations, they they choke themselves in a variety of different ways. I found out that, you know, certain lesbian groups in New York do it with scarves and certain people would do it with belts due to trauma. So I moved back to New York to really focus on the distribution of those films. And while I was in school, I was like, I think that I want to have more control over my work, over mm-hmm. my creative work. So I thought that I wanted to be a producer and that's why I went to school, to law school to become a producer. And I attended Lewis and Clark Law School because of a couple of reasons. At the time that I um, applied and got accepted, it was a tier one school. I'm not really sure what the rankings are now. And it had the top 10 business program here in the States. And also was across the country. It was in a completely different environment. At the time, Oregon was the whitest state in the nation. I'm from New York City where <laughs> it is not a white city. Such a culture shock, um, I'm sure. So I wanted to be immersed in a a different environment. And also there were really strong programs that attracted me to the, the university. Wow. Um, so you mentioned being a creative and, and, and then finding the law. How did your creativity inform like what you wanted to focus on in law school and the ideas you had around how you wanted to cultivate a legal career? Yeah, I think the basis of all creativity is curiosity. Mm -hmm. So although I did enter law school with the idea of wanting to become a producer, after my first year required courses, I started to study abroad and I applied to different international programs. I was very lucky my second year, I studied at Queen Mary's University in um, London and I focused on public law, international trademark, international copyright law, and EU law. And that really changed my perspective. (laughs) It changed my perspective in the sense that it it, um, allowed me to think beyond my projects, and it allowed me to think about how I wanted to actively participate within the world, a part of a larger discourse, not only about, you know, working on my films, which is great, but working on, you know, guiding frameworks that that governed basically the EU and being half Italian and having grown up going to French school, you know, Europe has always been a part of my life. So I changed direction. So I actually got a job offer my second year to work at the International Court of Justice in, in Europe, but I didn't accept that because I wanted to 
um, work in the States. And that's exactly what I did. So after school, after I graduated, I worked briefly in Oregon, but then I got a job offer for in-house counsel in a startup in Europe. So I left again. But my, I would say, just to answer your question, my creativity has always been supported by my curiosities Mm -hmm. and I've always engaged with my curiosities. So that's what I would encourage a lot of people to do, to really be curious and not be so stuck in stone with, you know, certain life choices that you make. Because I went from working in Europe um, in a field, you know, international business transactions to Mm -hmm. moving back to the States and focusing on a really niche area of representing international artists. Yeah, that's incredible. That's such a unique experience as well to do a legal program abroad. So what was your perspective on the the different experience going to law school in Europe versus law school in the US? That's a great question. So I actually did it two ways. So when I was in law school in America, I did a bunch of study abroad programs. So I studied at La Sorbonne. I studied at l'Università di Firenze, but I actually went to law school. So once I did get my JD, I actually went to law school in Europe because I was working for an international law firm in Spain. And I wanted to be able to have the freedom to be able to practice in all the EU member states. Mm-hmm. So the biggest difference I would say is here in America, we understand things conceptually because we extract the law from reading and analysis. Our law is judge-made law. There's certain aspects of um, American law that's codified, for example, federal law, but our civil law is judge-made law, whereas in Europe, everything is codified. Mm -hmm. So I noticed that where here in America, they, the students, or at least the institutions push really hard for students to think conceptually, you know, i.e. with the Socratic method. Mm -hmm. And, you know, our exams are written exams or long exams in Europe, the exams are oral exams, and they're basically interrogating you on, for example, the civil code, Mm -hmm. which is not, I'm not criticizing that way of learning the law. But I really appreciate how in America, we focus sometimes on the big picture and big concepts and teaching us, especially in law school, the tools to be able to extract data and information. Right, yeah. And and what would you say was your experience like as a mixed race woman in a law school environment in the US versus in Europe and like that identity, bringing that identity to the classroom? So in my in my class, there were three non-white people, so three minorities, wow. myself, my friend Myra, who's a federal public defender, who's a Black American, okay. and a Latina slash Hispanic student. So mm-hmm. only us, which is crazy. She was from, you know, the Latina slash Hispanic student. She was from LA, so also very used to a diverse type of environment. Myra is from Florida, and in Florida, it is very, very diverse, especially mm-hmm. South Florida. So for us, it was very, it was very unique experience because our peers and our professors did not reflect our cultural background, which I think is important for enriched discussions in law school to have a wide variety of people and experiences because how we interpret the law and how we apply the law is going to be based on our unique experiences. So that was something that was very, very noticeable early on. Um, Probably in my experience, what was very noticeable um, and what I disliked about law school was the static 
nature of a lot of the students. So I really strive and I and I push my team to do this as well to really look at themselves and really look at myself as a holistic individual. Mm-hmm. So my experiences or the sum of my experiences really I know will enrich or directly affect or impact the quality of my legal work. Right. So a lot of the times I was not taken seriously by my peers in law school because I was, you know, I volunteered at the Portland Art Museum and thought that that was such an unorthodox thing to do your first year of law school. I also was a mentor for a a young woman who was an at-risk youth. And I thought that that was really important for me to do because it's important for me to lead by example. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing that I do now with my law firm. I have a very, very robust internship program where I really try to recruit young aspiring attorneys, women of color aspiring attorneys, marginalized groups so that they can see that, hey, you know, I can run a business, I can have a team, I can do these types of things in my community, in my environment. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my my interests and my curiosities have always been executed at every stage of my life. I was never that type of law student that was, oh my God, it's only law school, this is my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a whole host of things during law school to enrich my experience as an individual and as a future attorney. And I think that's that is what led me to ultimately graduate from law school in two years instead of three years compared mm-hmm. to my peers. That's amazing. Wow. A lot of people can't say that they've done all that during the, even those short that short period of the law school experience. But if you had any advice for yourself back in law school, what advice would you give? If I could give myself advice in hindsight, I would say go to do not care, do not focus on rankings. I I focused a lot on rankings. I had gotten full rides to schools that were top tier schools, like maybe they were like tier four schools. And I can say that as a professional, like looking for a job and having worked in two different continents, Europe and North America, mm-hmm. that no one clients, prospective employer, maybe my first job, they asked for my grades but no one really cares about where I went to law school, where I passed the bar. They're really interested more in my expertise and how I can win the case for them. So I would I would tell myself, do not focus on rankings and really choose um, a school that's going to, you know, it, you know, school is very important, but it's not the be all end all of your career. I think that it's really important to make um, smart financial decisions, even at a young age. Financial literacy is extremely important. And sometimes, you know, getting a whole bunch of student loans just so that you can have that strong name attached to your school, I don't think is necessarily worth it in the long run, depending on what you're doing for your career. Of course, if you're if you're interested in working in big law, it's a very different discussion. But for those students who end up working in medium-sized firms or, or small law firms or even working for themselves right after law school, I don't think the name of the school is as important as the dedication to becoming an expert in your field. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very relevant advice. And you just have such an interesting background and, and career already, even just before you became a lawyer, it's, it was interesting. But can you talk about what your current practice entails now and what your position is and how you got to that point? Yeah, absolutely. So my firm, Yale Law Group, we have two offices um, in New York and New Jersey. We actually opened up the second office during the height of the pandemic because I think it's important to take 
risks and to put yourself out there. And we are a full service immigration law firm and trademark firm. So we file trademark applications for our artist clients and we we do all aspects of immigration law, although a very, very large percentage of our clients are international artists. So I would say 95% of my clients are international artists, creatives, performers, and entertainers. Mm-hmm. I do have some clients in removal proceedings, but really what our forte is or what we're known for is our work with international artists, creatives, performers, and entertainers. So I, I, I started my firm actually in my kitchen when I was pregnant with my um, first daughter. My husband, who's an engineer, and has always run his own business, basically saw me hustling for, you know, the firm that I worked for. At that point in my career, I was no longer really working on cases. I was really managing and training junior attorneys. And my husband really pushed me and encouraged me and said, you know what, you can you can do this. You can you can run your own practice. You can have your own clients. And I was very unsure. And he's like, listen, worst comes to worst, you go work for another firm. And I, and I knew that that would always be a possibility because of my dedication to becoming an expert in my field. So a, a lot of the firms that work with this case type were aware of my skills. So I took a risk and I left my firm. I informed the firm inform the clients that I was representing. I was very lucky that clients chose to follow me. So while I left, severed all times, you know, informed clients based on, you know, the rules of ethics here in New York State, but I still had clients who wanted to continue to work with me. So I actually did start off with a couple of clients, a handful of clients actually, in my kitchen. And I just slowly grew. So by day, I was working on my legal cases on my own. And at night, I was networking and hustling like crazy. So I was going to a lot of art openings, gallery exhibitions, um, performances, really getting the word out to different types of creatives that I'm that I'm a supporter, that I'm a patron of the arts, both as an attorney and as you know a private individual. And I think that that really helped me in the beginning because it really showed my clients and my and potential clients this um, side of me that I really couldn't express when I was working at firms. It, it demonstrated an authenticity and a dedication to the arts and to my clients that, like I said, I didn't really have the opportunity to do or to showcase or demonstrate when I was working for other firms. And I think that that authenticity and that truthfulness about myself and my willingness to talk about different aspects of the arts is what continues to make me successful today. Looking back over your career so far, do you think that going to a firm was pivotal in providing that foundational knowledge or what what do you think is an appropriate career path? I think that all individuals should cultivate an entrepreneurial spirit. That doesn't mean that you don't need to work at a firm. In fact, you can be quite entrepreneurial while um, serving as an associate. One of the biggest mistakes I would say that I made in my career was really being focused on the success of the firms that I worked for. So really, you know, serving as a rainmaker um, for the firms that I worked for and creating systems. So The benefit for me, at least in working for a bunch of different firms, um, was seeing how cases were handled because all of the deficiencies that I saw in the firms that I worked for and the systems that they utilized, I have been able to perfect. So in my firm, everything is codified. Everything has a system. Everything has a process. 
We try to maximize efficiency for clients in, you know, the most pleasant and agreeable way. So that foundation um, of working for firms, of course, like I said, showed me deficiencies in how other firms worked. And number two, which I think is quite important, allowed me to liaise and network with other attorneys. So other attorneys um, that I worked with, some of them are really focused on the O-1 visa and the O-1 green cards like me and trademarks and others are not. So throughout my career, I've been able to be supportive of, you know, colleagues who, you know, need to talk about a case and need to really understand what's going on with that case and vice versa. The importance of developing a community, and I would say in our case, a community of women who support you is really, really important. And that's one of the things that I actually did during the um, pandemic. I created a group of women attorneys. It started off as a Facebook group and then a Facebook messenger group. Now it's a WhatsApp group and we meet regularly to just discuss, you know, best practices. What are our goals? What are what are some issues in, in, in the law that we want to discuss? And it's really, really great to have a no judgment zone. There are women attorneys so that we can improve the profession and of course, deliver excellent legal services to our clients. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's great. Let's see. So you kind of talked about um, your ideas around career paths. Can you also talk about what the best advice that you've ever received over your career so far has been? Um, this might sound really old fashioned, uh, <laughs> but the best advice that I was ever given was don't focus on money at the beginning of your career. Mm. So that's exactly what I did. So I didn't focus on money. I focused on being a sponge. I focused on acquiring as much information and data as possible because I knew, I know that money is something that can be earned, but getting experience and getting knowledge is much more difficult than earning money and earning income. So at the beginning of my career in Europe, at the beginning of my career in New York, I accepted low salaries because I needed and I wanted the opportunity to learn from more experienced individuals so that I can I could develop my expertise, my way of working. So that's what I focused on. I know that it's very difficult to hear this advice because a lot of people really are bombarded with the messages of know your worth, know your value. But realistically in, in the legal field, um, a first year associate has no value to a law firm. A more experienced paralegal is of the utmost value to a law firm. So I, I know it's it's hard to hear, but this is just very, very practical advice, which is why it's really important to do well in internships and externships throughout your legal academic career. But at the beginning of your career as an associate, the firm is making all the investment into you, Mm -hmm. right? The firm is training you. The firm is having you understand different case types, interfacing with clients. It's a huge, huge investment. And again, hopefully you land in a good firm that teaches you all these things or that gives you the opportunity to execute your knowledge. But I would say at the beginning of your career, focus on getting the experience and the knowledge because it's a very temporary part of your career. The beginning of your career is, you know, maybe one or two years compared to the longevity we have as attorneys. Attorneys don't need to retire. You could work until you're 85, 90 years old if you wanted to. <laughs> so we're really talking about a small aspect of your career, which is going to lay the foundation for the rest of your career. We're talking about, you know, potentially a 60 year career. Mm-hmm. And hopefully the money will come. <laughs> the money will definitely come. The money will definitely come. I, I strongly believe that, especially if you're in a saturated legal market like New York, Miami, um, L.A., you really need to you, you need to hustle. I mean, no one is really special. You just have to work 
really hard. And part of working really hard is demonstrating your value to a firm. So for example, there's a lot of firms right now who are changing their payment structures. So -hmm. instead of giving attorneys like a base salary, what they're saying is, you know, you've got to earn your salary. You've got, you're going to earn a commission based on the work that you bring in. Mm -hmm. Right. That's, that's very hard for an associate, especially when you don't really have contacts or know a lot of people or even know how to generate business. So the more you position yourself as an expert and you become an expert through experience and through acquiring knowledge, the more attractive you'll be to a firm and the higher the compensation you will attract. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In terms of expertise, let's get more into your your practice area. So you mentioned that you work a lot with international artists. Mm-hmm. What exactly does that work entail? And are there some current projects that you're working on that's bringing you some joy? Yeah. So working artists in the law is not really defined. So it's basically anyone that utilizes creativity to execute their work. So my clients range from models to actors, performers, dancers, singers, marketing experts. I once did a violin restorer, food photographers. I represent a famous photographer. They're all different types of creative people that we um, represent. Businesses, art fairs right now, we're working on a music supervisor. So a person who curates music for businesses. So when you, you know, when you walk into like Forever 21 and you hear, you know, like Taylor Swift's Uh, for example, or any sort of song like that's, you know, one of our newest clients right now. Yeah. So I've learned, I've learned a lot um, about different aspects of the field or of the arts field, for example, because I personally was interested and am interested in theater and film and TV, but you know, I've had clients who are ballroom dancers. So I know a lot about ballroom dancing, for example, and some projects that I'm working on right now are not really related to the law firm, but more related to my interest of the arts. I'm very, very interested. And we're looking at a space to open up a creative space, like like a gallery. So it would be like a gallery by day and then a creative space at night for other types of artists so that they can continue to to work on their art. Uh, Artists were hit very hard during the pandemic because the nature of art for the most part is to be shared, right? To be Mm -hmm. explored as a group with multiple people in similar spaces. And when that was taken away, they were kind of, they were kind of lost. They were kind of lost because there was no work to be done because of the, obviously the COVID restrictions and the need to protect patrons of the arts. So obviously very, very understandable, but very difficult for artists to start to, to continue to execute their work. So that's a a big project that um, is in the pipeline. And probably what's most exciting right now is we just moved into a larger office space. So Again, if you go back to like my advice of like not focusing on money at the beginning of your career and being patient or being strategically patient, you can grow. So I went from, you know, obviously being an associate to being managing attorney for a firm. And now, you know, I run, I, I, I run a pretty robust law firm with a very strong um, reputation. And I hope to continue to grow and to provide opportunities for, you know, marginalized individuals, aspiring young attorneys and to be a leader to to my staff and to my family and to my community. So we've talked before, and I know that you're really uh, active on social media. Can you talk about the role of technology and innovation in, in being a 21st century lawyer? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I think at the beginning of COVID, everyone kind of scrambled to become virtual, but we've been virtual. I hate paper or I hate wasting paper since um, the beginning of my firm's inception. So that was never really an issue for us. Like I said, I've always had pretty robust systems that I've been able to teach and transfer knowledge to my team and my staff. So we were able to really effectively handle working from home. For example, we've always had a VOIP. So, you know, answering phones or getting phones, you know, or getting calls transferred to our phones was never really an issue because our calls come through our cell phone and through our computer, through the app that we use for mm-hmm. our VOIP. So during COVID, we utilized or we maximized the use of our our technology. And I think that that was really, really helpful. And in, in terms of social media, I think that social media is something that a lot of professionals are afraid to engage with. And rightfully so, attorneys and other professionals have For example, rules of ethics that they need to to follow, rules against soliciting clients. And these are rules that are taken very, very seriously. And here in New York, at least the rules are skewed towards the protection of of the client or of the the non-attorney. So my my answer to that, to attorneys or to professionals who are afraid of utilizing social media is number one, protect yourself, do your homework. I have an ethics attorneys to make sure that we are doing things properly and within the rules, within the bounds of the rules of ethics. But that fear of maybe not posting something properly should not be a deterrent to utilizing social media to better service your clients. So I know that as attorneys, We work on very complex cases and issues, and we are problem solvers and we are strategists. But at the foundation, at the base, this is a service industry. We are delivering a service to a client, and that service is resolving the problem. Now, if you continue to ignore emerging channels of communications that people utilize and people and businesses utilize, then your business will suffer. That doesn't mean that you're not a great attorney. That means that you're probably not a great businesswoman. And if you are running a firm, you have multiple hats. You have the lawyer hat, so the managing attorney hat, and you also have the businesswoman hat, which means that you need to ensure that your phone is ringing so that you can hire people and that you can work and that you can earn a profit, right? All, all of this while changing people's lives, changing people's lives through a trademark, through a visa, through you know a criminal case, etc. But the use of social media is paramount for the 21st century, the 21st century attorney, because clients are are out there. And I always say, I always say, listen, if Coca-Cola is doing it. There's no reason why we can't do it. And everyone knows of Coca-Cola. You cannot go to any place in the world where people do not know this brand, Coca-Cola. But still, even though it is insanely famous, they still engage in marketing on Facebook, on Instagram, on television, brand sponsorships, celebrity sponsorships, etc. There's no excuse for a small law firm to not do it. And I know that when you're running a small law firm or when you're a solo practitioner, you don't have a lot of time and that's understandable, but still we're attorneys. We figure out solutions. You have to figure out the technology that works best for you. You have to figure out, you know, the solutions that work best for you, because if not, then your firm is losing and your services will not be delivered to people who really need them to move forward in their life. And therefore you will not be delivering the prophecy of being an attorney, helping others. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree with that. And the legal industry is one that's so far behind in terms of technology and innovation. So it's important that we continue having these conversations to encourage our colleagues. 
I would say it's changing. I two days two days ago or three days ago, I just gave a speech at the City Bar Association, which is Mm -hmm. the largest organization here in New York for attorneys. And it's a really great organization. I encourage everybody to to join, whether you're an attorney or you're a law student. Um, And we were having these conversations. I was talking about you know, you know, the, the number of followers I have, which is something that I developed, you know, during COVID, you know, the technology that I use to be able to manage this, you know, best practices, should you hire someone in house? Should you hire an agency? Should you hire a, a virtual assistant? These are all conversations that attorneys are having right now. And I'm very, very happy because I want to see the legal industry change. It is no longer, you know, the the legal industry is no longer, you know, you walk into, you know, an old man's office and you see like an array of books. I mean, that's not, <laughs> that, that's not what um, law firms are anymore. So the aesthetic of the attorney is changing. Now the execution and the communication of what an attorney is or who she is needs to start changing. And it is beginning to change. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And with that eye towards the future, what are your hopes for the future of your career and where do you see yourself going, evolving, et cetera? Where do I see myself going? Well, I see myself um, growing every year. So hiring more people, becoming more well-known outside of New York City and ultimately being the go-to person or the go-to attorney for international artists. So when people think of, oh, how am I supposed to, you know, get this done as an international artist, I want them to think of me. I want them to think of our firm. I want there to be not a doubt in a person's mind that we are the best solution to resolve their problem. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that takes a lot of work. That takes a lot of work because there's no substitute for excellent legal work, which means that we have to continue to win our cases. But also you have to continue to market and advertise and create strategic partnerships and continue to engage in speaking engagements and continue to get press for the work that you're doing. So it's it's a very complex goal and idea that we ha- I have for myself, but I think that it is totally possible with a lot of hard work and dedication and strategy. And I would say it's possible for any other attorney too. I don't believe in the excuse there's no time. I don't believe, oh, I can't get this done. I'm too busy. Um, This is, you know, 2021. Every single person is busy. Even toddlers are busy with their after school activity. Um, So so if a toddler can, you know, go to school, go to after school, do homework, have play dates, and he or she is only three, then there's no reason why an attorney should be negligent with the management of her career and um, her goals. Mm-hmm. Manifestation is important too. Um, so since this is the Sisters in Law podcast, I have to ask you our trademark question, which is, who is your sister in law? And this could be anyone who you admire, who you connect with on a deeper level. That's also a fellow black woman attorney that you'd like to shout out on the podcast. Um, I have many women attorneys that I look up to that I turn to for advice, but personally, someone that I think is just a sublime individual who has basically changed the world is Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, who coined the term intersectionality, which I think is obviously started off as a, a legal theory, but now is being applied to critical race theory, gender studies, and feminism. So I have um, people who know me, know me that I study feminism a lot. I read a lot about feminism and I, I have taken a scholarly and academic approach to feminism. 
And her idea, again, which started off as a legal theory of intersectionality is basically transformed the way individuals see themselves and perceive themselves and present themselves. So she has basically changed the world. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's 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 an amazing thing to see a professional black woman, a professional woman of color do this. And we should all aspire to this sort of greatness. I'm not saying that we all need to be great like her, but we should at least be on that journey to to create things, to put things out into the world that will make us better. And this theory of intersectionality, again, it's just, it's, it's a way that people now identify themselves and how people explain their identities. And we weren't not having these conversations earlier, but the more the world progresses, the more we're starting to understand that your identity cannot be divorced from your profession. So just like those kids were making fun of me in law school because I was into, you know, art and, you know, interning at, you know, or volunteering at the Portland Art Museum, we see it so clearly now that the cultural background of an individual or the multiple identities of an individual cannot be divorced from her profession and how she now navigates within her profession. So thank you, <laughs> Professor Kimberly Crenshaw. You are, you've given the, the greatest gift um, to the world. I love that you shouted her out. She's an incredible person. I totally agree with everything you just said. And I always follow her work and say her name is one of my favorite projects that she's done. And you literally said her name. So uh, I appreciate that. I I hope more people, a lot of people now are learning about intersectionality and and reading about, you know, people who have propagated this. So, for example, um, you know, James Baldwin, very important actor or figure within the intersectionality movement. I just hope that people know where it comes from. And I feel like a lot of people don't. A lot of people understand this word, apply this word, execute this word, but we don't give we don't give proper deference to the creator of this word and these this this concept, this idea. Yeah, we're giving her credit right yes. here. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'd love for you to share where the audience can follow you or follow your work if you're comfortable sharing your social media or anything that Um, Yeah, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Instagram, Yao Law Group, Facebook, Yao Law Group, TikTok, Yao Law Group, where else? Twitter, Electra Esquire. Or if you don't want to reach out to me on social media, you can just email me. My email is Electra, so E-L-E-K-T-R-A at YaoLawGroup.com. I'd be happy to have a conversation with you, take you out for coffee, give you some pointers, introduce you to somebody. If you need an introduction, do not be afraid to to ask. I'm, I'm one of those people I hope to deliver value to everybody that I meet. So even if it's something silly like, hey, Electra, do you know a criminal attorney that might be hiring for an intern or an extern? Ask me the question. If I can help you, I will help you. Amazing. Thank you so much, Electra. Thanks for having me. This was such great fun. And I will continue to follow your podcast and all of the sisters that you have on your show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's conversation. As always, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review and let us know your thoughts on the episode. You can find us on social media on Instagram at Sisters in Law, on Twitter at Sisters in Law Pod, and like our Facebook page. For a full transcript of this week's episode, go to the website at www.sistersinlaw.org. If you know someone that can benefit from these episodes, feel free to share the podcast with them.
Thank you for tuning in this week and stay tuned for our next sister-in-law. Until then, peace and love. <music>